Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. India is a country with a population of almost 1.4 billion and is on track to surpass China as the world's most populous nation by 2027. And India's geographic footprint is roughly the size of the Western continental United States. About 12% of its population, or 129 million people, speak English, which is almost double the number of English speakers in the Philippines and over four times the population of Canada. Unlike China, India's population pyramid actually looks like a pyramid. Its working class of people aged 25 to 65 is currently 650 million compared to China's 830 million. But by 2040, India's working class is projected to reach 900 million, while China's will drop to 730 million. India is strategically located between China, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, and is within striking distance of Australia and Africa. Its GDP growth rate has increased by at least 6% since 2013. India continues to be on the rise as it modernizes its infrastructure, reforms its legal system, and capitalizes on its cultural and strategic affinity with the English-speaking world as an alternative to China. And the Indian diaspora, the largest in the world, continues to make its mark as many highly educated Indians contribute to economies around the world, including the United States. Today we are joined by Himang Parekh a transaction lawyer working in Mumbai with DSK Legal, where he advises domestic and international clients on a variety of transactions, including cross-border M&A, private equity, venture capital, joint venture, and strategic investment transactions. He regularly represents a diverse range of clients on matters of corporate commercial laws, securities laws, foreign investments in India, and outbound investments from India, employment laws, and other general laws. Last year, Himang was recognized as a 40 under 40 rising star by Legal Era, was nominated as Dealmaker of the Year by Asian Legal Business, and was nominated as Corporate and MA Lawyer of the Year for the Legal Era Awards. Himang, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Himang, welcome to the show, and let's dive right in. Uh, could you tell us about some recent notable developments in India's business sector to get things rolling? Sure. So, uh, India has been at the cusp of an economic development since the last few years. And as you mentioned during your introduction session, there is a lot of interest in India. We continue to thrive as an economy. We are well poised from the perspective of of addressing the requirements of the domestic people as well as international requirements. In the last two months itself, only one Indian company has received billion dollars worth of investments from three or four American companies, Facebook, General Atlantic, Vista, and Silver Lake, 
all these investors have invested monies which are to the tune of billion dollars in the Indian economy in just one company. In addition to this particular transaction, India is seeing a lot of interest from European companies where they're trying to set their footprint in India and move their manufacturing base from China into India. Very recently, the government of India has announced uh, economic reforms and a stimulus package for boosting the economy because uh, of the pandemic, the damage that has been caused due to the pandemic to address that. This package is equivalent to 10% of India's GDP. So there's a lot of activity that the government is doing to gear up the country for meeting the domestic requirements, as well as to become an international hub and attract foreign investments in India. Hemang, you mentioned India as a manufacturing hub and, and countries around the world looking at India as manufacturing. Can you talk about that a little bit, why India is a good manufacturing base for potential investment as well? So from a, from a manufacturing-based perspective, I think India has got every essential ingredient that a manufacturer would look for uh, when they want to set up a base in India. You've got uh, a large population, which, is, which makes a labor available. You've got huge portions of land available, which makes it easy to set up large manufacturing units. We've, we have lots of ports available in the country, so we are quite strategically located with Arabian Sea, the Bay of Bengal, and the Indian Ocean at three sides of the country. So from a strategic perspective, also there is a lot of infrastructure which is available for setting up a base in India. And in addition to all this, since 1991, when the Indian economy opened up to receiving FDI, the government has consistently made reforms to ensure that foreign investors feel at home and they find it easy to set up base in India. And as we speak, the government continues to promote its Make in India exercise which is basically an effort to attract foreign investors. I think one of the key factors why India is such a prominent target for setting up manufacturing base is the size of population that we have. We have a good mix of skilled as well as unskilled labor. It's getting easier for the government. The government is bringing in reforms to make doing business in India easy. And also there's a lot of talent available. So for a manufacturer to look at India as an option, it's just very simple to find the right kind of people to work for. The labor force is available. You have the right kind of policies which are being drafted. And ingress and egress out of the country is also equally easy. So I think all these factors combined make India a good option for setting up manufacturing base. If you see historically, we have been a manufacturing base for a lot of companies across the globe. For example, the German and the Japanese companies have set up, automobile companies have set up large manufacturing bases in India. For example, Apple has set up a manufacturing base. Samsung has a manufacturing base in India. And in the present situation, very recently, we've read news about Apple trying to enhance its manufacturing capability in India. So it, it's, it's, I think, the, the whole concept of the government making reforms, the availability of skilled and unskilled resources, the availability of land makes it very easy for a manufacturer to come into India and set, set up a base. One of the trends we've been observing for the past few years, even predating the current tensions between the U.S. and China, has been the search by foreign companies that up until now have been operating in China for, for alternatives. Uh, but certainly the, the, the trade war and the tensions that have gone along with that have intensified 
the the imperative to look for alternatives or, or to at least diversify. I would imagine that to some degree, at least, India is benefiting from that given its position as an alternative. Could you talk uh, about that a little bit, please? So I think, uh, as you rightly said, there is a benefit for India from the ongoing trade war between US and China. I think the first thing that any country would look when it looks for an alternative to set up its business is the political stability in the host country. Given the present situation in India, there's a lot of political stability between in, in India. The leadership at, in between India and US are at great terms. So I think that's one of the key factors where India will benefit because there is a strong rapport, there's a strong understanding and faith between the two countries and the leadership of two countries. That provides the first level of comfort that any American company would want to look at or any other country would company would want to look at when they want to look as an alternative to China. I think the second big reason for that would be the, the vast resources which are available in India. We have we are ready in that sense for receiving more investments. We are ready in that sense for being a more integral part of the global supply chain. Since the onset of the pandemic, the Indian government and the state governments in India have taken multiple initiatives and are working on coming up with multiple schemes, which will provide as an incentive for the European and the American companies or the Japanese companies to come and set up their base in India. So as an alternative, we have everything which a manufacturer would look for, which an investor would look for, which companies across the board in any kind of sector, be it technology, be it manufacturing, be it pharma, be it healthcare, anything that a company would look for is available in India in addition to the political stability that we have. So I think that's going to be really a game changer for India where we will be a very suitable option for the Western countries and the other countries to look at India as an alternative. And of course, between India and China, both these have been a strong hub for manufacturing. They've been a strong hub for economic activities with the US. So if one limb with China is going to weaken because of the ongoing situation, then there is going to be a little more opportunity available to the Indian companies and Indian government to you know, to, to service the requirements of the global needs. And therefore, I believe that's where we will benefit from the situation. As you may know, Fred and I have both lived and worked in China. And so we, uh, we love keeping pace with China. And we're always interested in how China's neighbors and China's trading partners are dealing with China and what the, and the temperament on the ground is in your country. Could you talk a little bit about that, about your relationship with China, what you're seeing uh, with companies you're working with, and then also how that compares to your other trading partners in the region? Yeah. So I think because of the present situation, there has been a little bit of a strain between the India-China relationship. Very recently, the government has come up with a circular where it has made investments from China under an approval rule. So any investment from now on from a Chinese company or even a private equity fund set up in China will require government approval. Having said that, I think that's a measure that the government has taken to, to sort of protect the Indian economy from you know, the Chinese companies, which are cash rich from making 
hostile acquisitions in India. So the intent here is to ensure that the Indian economy is also not as dependent on China as it used to be. I think that's a universal fact which most jurisdictions, including the US, is trying to follow, where we're trying to isolate or we're trying to reduce our dependency from China to the extent possible. So that's caused a little bit of a uneasiness in the trade relations between India and China. But prior to this, the relation between India and China, though we have our own land disputes at the borders, etc., the relationship between India and China has been quite reasonably good. For example, China is one of our largest, largest Indian companies import a lot of material from China. They are a huge market for Indian pharmaceutical companies, for Indian electronic companies. So the relationship has gone a bit sour in the last few months. But other than that, generally, the trade relations between India and China have been quite reasonably good. They've not been bad, but they've been, and they've not been great, but they've been reasonably good, I would say. And could you contrast India's relationship with China to its other trading partners? Like, for instance, uh, Japan, uh, companies in Europe, you know, how, do, how, does, uh, how does that compare? So I think before the present pandemic situation started, the relationship between India and China was good. And the relationship that India had with other jurisdictions like Japan, like Germany, France, Netherlands, and the UK and the US, were almost at the same footing that we had with China. There were no real business issues between the two nations. We were seeing a lot of interest that Chinese companies had in India. India was a huge market for them from an export perspective. So we were importing a lot of stuff from China. At the same time, we were exporting a lot lot of stuff to China. Similarly, we were importing and exporting a lot of stuff to American, to German, to Japanese companies. So before the present situation started in the last two months, I think India's relationship with China was, uh, India's relationship with other jurisdictions was equally good the way it was with China. I don't see a, um, I, I don't think there was much of a difference in the way we treated them. Uh, we treated all foreign investors alike in that sense. So from the business, of course, there were certain markets which were more active, certain segments where, where we were more active with the particular jurisdiction. So for example, Japanese companies are big into India from a fertilizers and chemical perspective. Similarly, China was big into India from electronics perspective. India used to export a lot of pharmaceuticals to the US, to China, to UK. Similarly, India used to export a lot of uh, agri-commodities to jurisdictions like Germany. So before this, if we compare the situation with other countries, it was almost the same. We never had an issue with any jurisdiction. Among uh, Along these lines, could you tell us a bit about the India-US relationship? So I think the economic ties between the India and the US has been great. Since the past few years, we've seen a lot of activity, a lot of interest that American companies have in the Indian market, and that just continues to grow over a period of time. I think one of the main factors in all this is their good ties and the good political relationship that the leaders of the two countries share which has resulted into a large amount of foreign investment coming into India from the United States. Likewise, as a trade partner, the U.S. tops the list for India in almost every factor 
be it pharmaceutical, be it export of agricultural products, India and US have always been being great as trade partners. So we continue to see that activity. And as we speak, we see a lot of interest from American companies from uh, who are looking to invest in India, not just as strategic investors, but even as financial investors. And there has been a constant rise in the level of foreign investments that we are receiving from America. I think that speaks volumes about the relationship between the two nations. We, we, you mentioned a, a minute ago about the uh, pharmaceutical industry, and uh, I'd love for you to talk for a minute about um, India's intellectual property protections, uh, laws that are in place to protect innovation, um, and specifically how that um, how that might impact the U.S. medical supply chain. You know, um, as been talked about a lot in the U.S. media. Uh, the government is concerned about our dependence on China, and so diversifying, uh, either by bringing the uh, bringing those investments home, or moving them from a country like China to India, where we have uh, much less of a concern that uh, that India might turn turn off the valve and shut off our entire medical supply. Um, we'd love to hear more about that from you. Sure. So I think first important factor to understand here is that. As a for specifically for the pharmaceutical sector, uh, there are a lot of Indian companies which are which have set up their manufacturing bases in the U.S. So some of the top Indian pharmaceutical companies also manufacture in the U.S. That's one. Secondly, the U.S. FDA approvals are considered to be very stringent, and Indian companies are always thriving to get U.S. FDA approvals because that gives them a global access even to the European market. So I think from a pharmaceutical sector perspective, it's a very active sector between the two countries. And it's both ways where we have set up our base across in the US, whereas and at the same time, the American companies have tried to look for investing in Indian pharmaceutical businesses. From an intellectual property perspective, our intellectual property rights or laws on especially patent-related laws are not as comparable with the American or the European laws but they are quite stringent and there is a common law remedy which is available for protecting intellectual property. So in my more than 12 years of experience, I have never seen an American company suing an Indian company or an Indian individual for any kind of intellectual property violation on the patent, which is one of the key intellectual properties for pharmaceutical business. Even in terms of our trademark laws and copyright laws, they've been fairly complacent. We are signatories to some of the global treaties, and we are quite there in terms of providing intellectual property protection. And I think with the onset of American companies coming into India, them trying to set up more activities in India, the government will definitely make note of this particular aspect and try to strengthen the intellectual property laws to ensure that there is right level of comfort, which is available to the investors, to especially to the pharmaceutical companies, so that they can they can make investments without hesitation of there being any intellectual property violation. Mong, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, I've certainly learned quite a bit about India and think that our listeners will, will also be able to, to draw much uh, new knowledge in, in most cases about the country. Um, sort of going one step further um, and, and helping our listeners get a sense for the, the kind of material that helps you uh, 
learn and and um, develop your own opinions and and and, and viewpoints on on things. Um, could you please um, share with us? You know, what is it that you're either reading, listening, or watching to these days? So there is a lot of information that the government itself is disseminating to ensure that the right messages are circulated. So the best source of information is, of course, to look at the official websites of various government departments, be it the Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Labor, Ministry of Information Technology, which is published, which is making all the reforms and concept papers available on their websites for general audience to look at. In addition to that, we as a law firm also come up with our regular newsletters. We have updates which are available on our LinkedIn profile and one could look at those. Third source of information, of course, is the news reports, but those are not completely reliable because that has some level of interpretation that the journalism journalists would take to the news. Having said that, there's a fair amount of confidence uh, and fair amount of reasonable information available through the news reports in India. So I think the, the best source for anyone who's looking to read upon India is actually the government websites where they publish all information, including concept papers on what are the things that they plan to do, the new reforms that the government is looking at, or even the new updates that the government is trying to implement in change of laws, et cetera. Jonathan, what about you? Anything that you'd like to share with us today? A little while ago, I suggested a book by Peter Zion. It was called The Accidental Superpower. That was about the U.S. rise post-World War II. Um, he has a second book that he published a few years later that's called The Absent Superpower. And uh, I really enjoyed this because it it focuses very much on, uh, on the energy crisis in the world, um, particularly how the U.S. Uh, getting toward energy independence and becoming a net energy exporter instead of importer uh, impacts how the U.S. has engaged uh, from a national security perspective with, for instance, the Middle East. Um, and so uh, it talks about the, you know, the U.S.'s role pulling back from the global energy market and protecting you know, all, all the super tankers uh, floating all over the oceans, all over the world all the time, uh, from uh, pulling back that protection to um, how other countries as well that are, that are growing in their energy dependence uh, and their hunger for uh, energy resources will continue to grow, for instance, China and India, and how uh, places like the Middle East uh, and then countries what countries can natively produce uh, on the energy scale will also, how that all impacts uh, the global energy demand. Of course, that was pre-COVID-19. And so uh, we know that there was, a, there was quite a shock, you know, the price war between the Saudis and the Russians, of course, earlier this year. So there are a lot of wrinkles, but I think from a... Uh, from a hard numbers perspective and projected demand, um, Peter Zion's research is always top notch. And I appreciate um, being able to look at the global world through the lens of a very good uh, data collection. What about you, Fred? Well, sort of uh, taking a, a page from Haman's recommendation, something along those lines, um, my recommendation today is also a government uh, document. By the time uh, this uh, show is is published. Some time will have passed, but but at, at, at this particular moment, it it's actually really you know hot off the presses. It's the, the United States strategic approach to the People's Republic of China, which is a strategy document, um, as the name suggests, 
that was issued by the White House on the 20th of May. I mean, no surprises really in terms of the of the content or, or very few, but you know, the, the publication itself of the strategy is, is certainly uh, very, very meaningful. And if you want to have a sense of, of where things are going in the relationship with China, um, this is definitely the, the place to start. I mean, the U.S. relationship with China, I should clarify, this is definitely um, where you will be able to, to get a pretty clear explanation of what the, the government's objectives are going, going forward. So it's available. Uh, you can go to the uh, White House website and, and, and find it there. You know, as a as a concept, you know the the relationship between not just U.S. and China, but globally, there is a huge outrage. Like Australia has been expressing its its unhappiness over what has happened, and there is a fair bit of retaliation which the Chinese government is you know is is doing in terms of trying to uh, correct the image or ensure that they're not really sort of cornered in the whole situation. I think, you know, that has resulted into a lot of uh, general stress between the trade relationships between U.S. and China or other jurisdictions. And as you ask, you know, the question that you asked, that does this benefit India? So I think one key factor to note in all this is India as a country was really moving at a fast pace even before this whole situation happened. So we were poised to be one of the you know top two economies in the Latin in the next few years. I in my view, after the US and China, India is the next third big, big economy. And a lot of statistics supports that. So I think as an alternative or as so it's not to be seen that India is more of an alternative to China now. We have always been a very competitive alternative for China, even before the present situation happened. I think the question that you asked earlier on about the trade war between China and the U.S., will it benefit India, about the India-U.S. relationship? I think there's a very important perspective to keep in mind. We're talking about a triangular relationship between India, China, and the U.S. India and China have always been fierce competitors in terms of attracting foreign investments, in terms of the offerings that both the countries had. And it's not that the present situation has resulted in people looking at India as an alternative to China. India has always been there. We were always one of the best alternatives available to China, even pre-COVID. Having said that, the COVID has, of course, acted as a booster where it's made the US companies, the European companies, the Japanese companies, to start thinking whether their dependency on China is going to be is going to prove fatal for them, and I think that's why there's a sudden surge of interest that we see uh, in India. But it's not something new, if you ask me, from Indian from an Indian corporate lawyer's perspective. Uh, we've always seen a lot of activity. We've always seen a lot of interest that American companies have had in India. It's just that the present situation has made them realize that there was an over-dependency which they need to kill. And that's why India's role has become more prominent in the scheme of things. To give you an example, even just a couple of months back, we closed a large transaction, which was a global transaction where two American corporates were, uh, where an American company was selling its business to a 
private equity fund in the US. And a large part of their business was in India. So we were acting as counsels when we facilitate the sale of the business to the advice, to the to the American private equity fund. So this is just a small example that it's not new. It's not that India has suddenly come up to the horizon and people have started thinking about India. India has always been one of the, you know, one of the one of the attractive jurisdictions. And it's just that the present situation has has caused everyone to think about India more seriously, as everyone now wants to reduce their dependency on China. And as a country, we have a lot actually in common with the US at some level. As you mentioned, you know, we have a large English speaking population, which adds to the comfort level. Uh, we have a huge, huge potential, a lot of in, in terms of the manpower that we have. As you said earlier on, a lot of Indians are actually heading uh, large as our, our CEOs or, or chairmen of a lot of large American companies, which goes on to show that there has always been a cultural bond between the two countries. And I think one looks at the cultural bond, the, the wavelengths should match and thought processes should match before they look at business partners. And historically, all these factors have been very favorable for India and US, which in my mind has resulted now in people taking India as a more seriously viable option to China for being dependent or for starting up their bases in India. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, and I should have mentioned this um, a bit earlier uh, when I first talked about the, uh, the new US strategy, there is actually a mention of, of India and other like-minded countries such as Australia and, and Taiwan, uh, that this new U.S. strategy specifically mentions, specifically addresses uh, cooperation with, uh, with, with India as, as one of the, uh, the prongs of the U.S. strategy uh, towards China. Um, on that note, uh, once again, I'd like to to thank you for for being our guest. We will have to to sit down before too long because clearly there is a lot to talk about, and I'm sure that it will continue to be a very fluid topic that will give us lots to talk about. So, Hamang, thank you so much, and uh, we really appreciate the insight you have provided. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I had a great time talking to to you, and I look forward to having more interactive sessions because I, as you rightly said, there's a lot more. We've just touched the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more discussion that can happen. We can get into more granular details on, on sector specific questions and uh, would be delighted to continue providing information about India. Thank you, Humang. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to it. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.